name's David Vardabedian. Thanks so much for tuning in to Get Real Sobriety. Hope you enjoy this show. Hello and welcome to Get Real Sobriety. I'm here with Tasha Martin. Hi. And uh, we are on kind of, we're doing this series uh, on my book, 12 Steps Without God. Yes. And we, what did we do last time? We just kind of did an overview yeah, intro, just like yeah. a, a taste. Why I wrote the book. Yeah, kind of the concept behind it, the idea, you know, what is it, what does the 12 Steps Without God mean? Yeah. Well, uh, if anyone that's listening is thinking about buying a copy of your book, uh, I'm sure they're asking, why do I need this book? Like, who is this guy? Why, why, is, why is he important? Um, or why is this story relevant? Well, so I thought maybe it would be a good idea f- uh, to get to know you better because you've just kind of been, you know, the man at the mic interviewing and asking questions. So uh, might as well get to know you a little better. Um, we don't want to, you know, spoil the book. Right. But nonetheless, uh, I figured in traditional uh, AA style, share your experience, strength, and hope with us. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. You know, there, I always have um, this hesitation about my story, and I think you know it's boring. But there is that you know element of like um, identification. Like yeah. people are like, "Oh yeah, I did that," and you know, so that's you know in the traditional literature um, of the big book, they have all those stories in the back, so people can identify. You know, NA does the same thing, and. Everyone else uses those two things. Um, or you go to speaker meetings and, yeah. you know, they're not participation. And you listen to someone's story going, wow, fuck, I did, you know, that, that that's me, you know. Yeah. Um, so my journey, uh, you know, and I'm not, I don't, I don't mind spoiling the book, but, <laughs> you know, I was, I was raised in a household with a bunch of women you know, strong women. And they say it's feminine energy, but these women were gnarly, you know? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) My mom was a really strong woman who was an alcoholic. And uh, out of six kids and three marriages for my mom, uh, I'm just trying to think, There's, there was four of us that were in, you know, the 12-step program. And some some sooner than later... um, one of my sisters who has passed since ha- was in like, they called it Icky Paw or something. She was in like the young people. Oh, yeah. Um, swacky, they call this Swacky Paw because it's... You know, Southwestern area right, young people's, right. yeah. So I just remember she was like an Icky Paw or something. And I wasn't sober then. My mom got sober in 1969. And so at that, you know, I was 13 years old then. And so I was just kind of kicking it into... Oh, yeah, you were just ratcheting it up. Yeah, so those, you know, so my mom gets sober in 69. I get sober in 89, 20 years later. The year I was born. Yeah, Yeah. and um, (laughs) so I kind of talk about, you know, besides being brought up by women and and raised by estrogen and (laughs) knowing that, you know, looking at all my older sisters, you know, calling me a little brat and, you know, get away, you know, back then they don't have babysitters. Your sisters have to take care of you, you know? Oh, yeah. So um, it was so funny because 
they were just so irritated by me all the time, you know, because <laughs> they just didn't want to like, you know, I know they loved me because I was their little brother, but it was just, an, I was just irritant of like them trying to, I don't know, just do their own thing. But, um, so I, you know, I started using and drinking probably about that time. You know, I think I took my first drink or drug. I think I drank, you know, I always took sips off of things. But like, you know, starting to drink and party with my friends and smoke weed. There was this 20 year, 20 years, like when my mom got sober to, to when I did, you know. And, yeah. and those 20 years from, just call it 13 to 33, I look at the progression of the disease. I mean, it's so, you know, it's just typical, you know, 12-step stuff. Is that, yeah, it was fun, it was partying, and I just never knew different. You know, everyone smoked cigarettes. And and when I think back in retrospect, I... um, I go, well, maybe everyone wasn't doing that, just the people I was hanging out, you know? So I like, you know, hung out with, you know, like-minded people. So, and again, we're going, you know, into the 1970s and, uh, you know, LSD was prevalent, you know, marijuana was prevalent. And that's kind of what I did. I drank cheap wine and, and, and took LSD and took some pills and stuff, but... And then I learned that early on that I could, you know, I was an opportunist, you know, as, uh, I could sell drugs to my f- friends in school, you know, weed and pills and things like that and make money to buy my own stuff. Not, you know, I wasn't a major drug dealer. I was a kind of a minor drug dealer and then went into a medium drug dealer. You know? so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but all that time, the disease was progressing, you know, and um, I think I went into my first rehab in like 1977 or something. Okay. You know? And it was like one of those, uh, you know, like cottage, the CRC. Yeah. We used to call them spin dries. You go in there for 30 days. And so, yeah. and I remember going there and being introduced to the program. My mom was in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't really know about it. You know, and I mean, I knew that she was there, but I didn't know about it. And so obviously that didn't stick. You know, it was another 12 years of drinking, using. So, you know, I I, like, again, started doing more dealing and going, you know, in and out of jails and rehabs through the late 70s. I worked in the music industry with my friend, got a job with kind of a popular band and he hired me as well. And. The, all that did was turn me into a heroin addict, you know. Oh, yeah. And, and all those guys were like 10 years older than me. And then a, a friend of mine, um, well, through this band and this guy, I was introduced to a place uh, in, in the valley called Sound City. And then I would, you know, it was one of the persons, I'm sure there was many, that would supply the party favorites for all the studios, you know, the bands that were coming through. And, oh, yeah, that's like a... Yeah. real position that's like a <laughs> yeah. job yeah and that was my job you know and but it turned me into a heroin addict and um so that being a heroin addict you usually go to jail or rehabs and i did all yeah. of that you know 
um, when they say uh, jails, institutions, and death. I've done all three, you know. I mean, you're saying, well, why are you talking if you're dead? But no, I OD'd and people revived me, you know. Oh, yeah. Seriously revived me. And um, I was on methadone maintenance for five years, which is a fucking nightmare. Um, yeah. You know, they talk about, like, the Suboxone now, how it's hard to get off of. And I that wasn't around when I was there, when I was using... And so things just got progressively worse. I mean, I went from the county jail in the late 70s and during the 80s and did like a couple of year, like they give you year sentences, you know. Mm -hmm. And people always say, well, the system's set up, you know, to bring you back. And it is if you keep using. Yeah. You know, I mean, I haven't been back to prison or jail since I quit using, you know. But I get that. It's, it's, I don't want to go into a whole political dialogue about how unjust the system is and all that but all i know is when i stop using i stop going to jail yes and there certainly isn't a lot of incentive for the justice system for people to get clean no they don't care and they don't care about dentistry either (laughs) no uh yeah i definitely pulled out when i was doing time in one of my uh prison stunts they like i was 29 years old and they fucking pulled out like seven of my teeth Ugh. i was like you know they don't say well today we're gonna do root canals and we'll put some caps on it's just like they're rotten get rid of them yeah i'm like fucking i'm 29 i'm still up to date you're gonna give me like partials now right? i'm gonna have dentures when yeah I'm you don't need those anymore <laughs> so you know during the 80s it was awful decade for me in and out of prisons in and out of jail jails and prison rehabs um and, you know, I say I'm an alcoholic in the sense of that when I drink, it always takes me back to my drug of choice, you know? Yeah. And I like to tell this story, and I think it is in my book. Um, and we could sit here and tell stories till the cows come home. For real. The main thing is, is this guy, when I was teaching class in the jail, I, I created the STP program in the Santa Barbara County Jail. And this guy comes up to me and he says, after one of the lectures or one of the groups, he goes, God, I love your presentation. It's so easy to understand. Um, you seem like a great guy. I'm really happy that you turned your life around. He goes, but I just don't think I'm an alcoholic. You know, methamphetamine is my problem. I go, wow, okay. And he goes, yeah, you know, I just, you know, alcohol's never been the deal. It's always been, you know, it's the meth, the speed, you know, and I'm like, so what are you telling me, basically? Yeah. And he says, well, that meth's my problem. I go, no, no, think about it. What are you telling me? And he's like, I don't get what you're saying, Dave. And I said, you're telling me that you will drink. And so the point being, what I'm saying is I'm an alcoholic, is that I told him, if you drink, you'll do meth. Yeah. You know, sitting here in a sober state of mind, you know, he was abstinent at that time you can cognitively process this thought that you will not do method again. But put a couple of beers in you, Uh, (laughs) shit changes, right? Yeah, loosen up those inhibitions. Right. And we know physiologically what it does to your brain. You know, the frontal lobe, it takes away, you know, like rational thought, and then it goes to your motor skills. And I'm, again, I'm not a doctor or a brain surgeon or anything, but I know I've, I've sat in biology classes and things like that and chemistry classes. So, and, and biologic, uh, 
biological psychology or something. It was one of my classes, and they did talk about that. So the point that I'm making is that, yeah, I'm a heroin addict, but I still recognize that I'm an alcoholic in the sense that I have that chemical imbalance. So yeah, that was a long-winded explanation of that. So yes, things like now we're in the mid-'80s, um, things got worse. I started going to prison. I started, you know, there's a couple stories, and we're going to talk about one of them uh, after this, that uh, started doing robberies that, I, you know, fuck, I'm some kid from the suburbs. I'm not like, you know, I didn't grow up, not that anything's wrong with growing up in the projects or anything, but, you know, my dead-end street was a cul-de-sac, you know? Yeah. It wasn't like, I'm, you know, my parents weren't beating me, and, you know, they were alcoholics, but... Right, in terms of predisposition, yeah. so to speak, right. stereotypically, I, you weren't that candidate. No, I mean, you know, I'm a surfer, skateboard kid, you know, that just got behind drugs and alcohol. Um, but so, you know, and I never thought that I would be, you know, doing armed robberies. And I ended up doing that stuff and, yeah. uh, and ended up back in prison again. And so during my last term... Um, there, you know, there, I, you know, obviously was uh, exposed to the to the 12-step programs. And I had one small stint of sobriety or abstinence during the 80s and went to meetings and had a sponsor, but just never worked the steps or anything. And, mm-hmm. um, but there was a day, and I don't know why. I mean, I had been way more strung out before. I had been... Um, you know, I'd been in way worse shape before my addiction, and I was—I didn't even have a habit. You're, you're in prison, and prison's funny because, you know, if if you have someone bringing you weed or bringing you heroin, then you have the sack, and you can get strung out. But if you and if you really want to spend a lot of time and a lot of money, but I just wasn't doing that. I was using when it was convenient, you know. And yeah. so a friend, two friends of mine, and I—we we scored about not even. I don't know, it was like three quarters of a gram of heroin, you know, (laughs) which isn't a lot, you know, for three people. Yeah. But we were all clean too, you know, with no habit. So we split that and we, um, you know, we had an, you know, an outfit, a needle is what we call an outfit. And, and so, you know, people always ask me, well, how do they get that stuff? Well, it's usually keistered, you know? So, and, you know, it's like when you're smoking weed, you're like, (laughs) Why does this stuff always smell like shit? You know, it's like because it's been in someone's butthole, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the 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 needle that we're using is cut in half Ugh. because it goes into a cigar cigar tube, and I can't even speak uh, cigar tube, and is up someone's ass, and then. You know, so the sanitary (laughs) part of it might not be very appealing. Um, So we did, we fixed, we each split that into thirds. This is on the infamous day of July 7th, 1989. I'm in Jamestown State Penitentiary. Um, And I had that moment of clarity. I had that, you know, epiphany or whatever they call it. You know, it's like the C's part, but it wasn't that. It was more this, and I'll tell you how it was for me. Yeah. Is that I was under the influence. I walked out on the tier 
of the prison, and now it's it was this wasn't cells uh, uh, living; it was dorm dormitory living. It was a level two prison or level one prison, and I walked out and looked out into the yard. And, you know, the yard means outside of your dormitory. And there's, it's kind of like a big baseball field or soccer field. And there's tables all around. And different people, you know, people are listening to music or playing cards or playing dominoes. People are in the weight pile. So it was, it was funny because I was looking down at this table. It was kind of like right below me. I was on the second tier. And I was looking down at this table and these guys were playing... Uh, dominoes yeah you know and they had all you know they had their prison bonnaroos is what we would call it like a lot of the um uh chicanos or latinos uh would you know really make an effort to make their prison clothes really like you know great you know they'd get three sizes on the waist and then pull them in so they were pleated yeah you know so and it was amazing that that they they could do that i didn't care that much right (laughs) so but I'm looking down at this table, and I remember the song that because a lot of times, uh, you know, oldies would be on the, you know, the boombox, and um, "I'm Your Puppet" was playing. This old, you know, uh, pull a little string and I'll dance for you. I'm your puppet. It's an I don't know. I should probably know who sang it, but and I looked down at this one guy, and he was probably about my age now, like in his early 60s, right, and. And his hair's all uh, gray, and but he he has you know he's in perfect like prison clothes. Yeah. And then I kind of like panned over this table, and there's this kid that's literally 18, kind of had the same clothes, but here is you know 40 years span, and this voice came into my head said, "This is what you're going to do for the rest of your life." And I'm 33 at this at this time, right? Yeah. And. Um, I'm like, it. It was just weird. It was like, I, I, I didn't say, you know, God help me. It was like, I just had this thing. It's like my parents were still alive then. Like people loved me on the street. People cared for me, and I just knew I didn't want to do this my whole life. And so I made a decision, like it says in step three, I made yeah. a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of this higher power. And I just said, you know, whatever it's going to take, I'm willing to do. So that was July 7th, 1989. I woke up the next day, which I call my sobriety day, July 8th, 1989. And I had a year left of my sentence. So I had um, uh, my, my release date was, uh, is, it was July 11th, 1990. So... Um, you know, in that time, my mom would come to visit me. They shipped me off to a fire camp in northern Los Angeles County. And uh, my mom would come and visit me. And, and she was sober still, you know. And, and uh, she'd been working at great pro- programs. She had a bunch of sponsees, was really active in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Um, and I said, you know, Mom, I'm, I'm, I'm sober and I'm going to meetings in prison. She's like, yeah, you know, like yeah. I've heard this song yeah, and dance like, before. Okay. Right? And, and again, you know, your parent, no matter if my mom was on, in the program, she was hard on her sponsees. I'm her baby. I was like the baby of the family. And 
it's still painful. For, it was still painful for her. And uh, I said, I'm just, I don't get this big book. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I've read it and I, yeah, you know, I'm not stupid. I mean, I, I get it kind of, but is there anyone that you would suggest that could come up and, and help me with it? So she sent me, so, you know, I, they probably forced this guy to come up. <laughs> this guy, his name was Pete O'Brien. He actually just passed away at 93 years old. Oh, wow. And he, he didn't have that much time. Now, he got sober in like 82, so this is 89, right? Okay. So he had seven years of sobriety. And I was on his Zoom memorial oh. just recently. So, um, sidebar, but yeah. he came up. Every two weeks for that year that I had on my sentence. Wow. To the visiting yard. And he didn't say, oh, you shot heroin. You can't be in AA or, you know, any of this stuff. He just was so loving and took me through the books. You know, probably my mom and his wife, where my mom was really uh, close friends with Margaret O'Brien. Yeah. You know, (laughs) here's this Irish guy that was the biggest fucking square that you would ever know. Yeah. I don't even think he ever smoked pot. He was just a classic, you know, (laughs) days of wine and roses kind of alcoholic, right? And, uh, And dude, I mean, the guy saved my life. Yeah. And so... I did all my steps in that first year. And, you know, obviously I've done, gone through it and gone through the 12 steps. And now I've written a book, The 12 Steps Without God. Um, and then I paroled. I paroled on July 11th, 1990. And uh, I guess that's a whole other podcast, you know. We can yeah. talk about my sobriety. But as part of an identification, just so you know that I'm not like just some PhD that came in here and is like figuring out why people are addicted. I lived a life. I've done mostly everything that we've all done. You know, like I said, jails, institution and death. And I get how we're feeling. One of my sponsees is a new kid that I'm working with kid. I mean, he's probably 30 or probably 28 or 29, but he, he goes, do you still remember what it was like? And I, yeah, I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> you don't forget that no, shit, it's right? Like you don't forget you. that shit. And so, um, yeah, that's that's you know like the cliff notes of my story. But you know, I guess cap and you know to to kind of encapsulate it, it's like to end it is like this program or this disease is progressive. Yeah, know? hands down. And. Um, you know, I you know I, I don't know. I mean, if you got sober young and you don't think you're an alcoholic, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, man. I just know for sure if I drink, like that one guy said, methamphetamines, I'll shoot heroin if I drink. Yeah. I'm 100% sure. I'm sure that I could go out of here and go have a glass of wine, and it might not be today. It might not be tomorrow. But eventually... Yeah, it will happen. It will, it will give me, because I believe I was born with that chemical imbalance of allergy, as they talk about. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope that helps somebody. And, and again, you know, we're here to talk about my book, 12 Steps Without God. Um, so there it is. And Tasha's going to take it from here. Yeah, at least in a sense, because, you know, yeah, now, now right. I'm the Riddler over here asking yeah. all the questions. Um, but yeah, I uh, I think you know, and you touched on it that you know that that identification is so important because 
that I think we all initially come into the program with at least some form of that terminal uniqueness. Yeah. You know, that nobody will understand, you know, or the things that I've done or, the, you know, no one's done worse things or been through these terrible things or right. had that done to them. And then if you stick around long enough, yeah, yeah you find out, no, they've done it and worse. And, you know, that's one of the things I really love about the fellowship and about 12 Step is that, you know, addiction, alcoholism, that ism is the great equalizer. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you're a kid from the suburbs, you know, or if you're a kid from the projects or if you went to public school or private school or Catholic school. Right. It do, I mean, I remember when I, when my family first found out that, uh, that I was a heroin addict, you know, that was one of the first things my mom said, you know, not, not my daughter. Right. Not we, my family. Yeah. Right. We gave you every advantage and, you know, you come from a loving family and you're educated. Um, and I, I mean, what, what can you say? It's like, well, but here I am. Right. And, but I, but I think it's really important to have that identification and, um, well, yeah, I think because yeah, people can say, well, God, you know, I, the other, the other uh, side of the coin is that people are like, well, fuck, I never went to prison or I didn't do, you know, it's like, but that doesn't matter. I mean, keep using, you probably <laughs> yeah, yeah, will, you'll right? go there. drinking, um, or maybe not, you know, I mean, my, I have family members that are still doing it and never were, went to prison or never really stayed out of the you know criminal justice system. So and it doesn't matter. And then people say about doing H and I work, you know, mm -hmm. hospitals and institutions. Well, what do I have to offer if I'm if I've never been? I mean, P, I H and I is you know I have the. Uh, great, you know, love for that because they helped me because I was in prison going to meetings, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, that's, the identification thing is really important. And what do we say? You go to a meeting and someone like me speaking, you're like, well, I can't identify with that. You know, just keep coming back because there's going to be someone that you'll connect with. And what do they say? You know, uh, take what you need and leave the rest. Oh, know, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and I think, like, and it is something that comes with just going to meetings or right. listening to people's stories or reading people's stories that you'd find that, okay, so even though David is a man and I'm a woman and I'm from the Midwest and he's from California and I've never gone surfing a day in my life <laughs> and, you know, and I've never been to prison, um... And yet I know that we have felt the same. Right. And I remember I was listening recently to um, a speaker on YouTube. It was Eric Clapton, actually. Oh, wow. Um, and he was talking about how, you know, there he was in his, you know, multi-million dollar mansion with all these rare guitars and with every celebrity's phone number in his phone and uh, more money than God. And he was so miserable that he almost couldn't think about going on another day. Wow. That it was, that no matter what kind of material success he had or, you know, career in his life, I mean, even his own kids, you know, right. it wasn't enough to stop that. And I think that, you know, often we compare our insides to other people's outsides. And we think, well, if that, if, if I, 
could only have you know enough money right. to maintain what I'm doing, then I'd be okay or yeah. whatever it is. And so I think you know in, in like reading your book, yeah, we we're born in different times, right. we have different experiences, mm-hmm. but like I I know that the, the feelings that you talk about are the same, right. um, and just in the the way that we treat ourselves in our addictions, you know, that we put ourselves in these ridiculous, dangerous situations, not thinking about, I mean, the idea that something bad could happen to us. I mean, I always thought my mindset was always, what's the worst that can happen? The worst is already happening, you know? Um, And I know in the prologue of your book, you talk about... um, where you almost died because someone tried to stab you right. or did stab you did stab me, in the yeah. throat. Here's the scar. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Very impressive. Yeah, it, it's so, um, it was an interesting night, you know, and, and again, we talked about that in the last podcast. I didn't even want to put any stories in, you know, yeah. and then yeah. Colin, you know, really you know, push that or said, look, you have to, to identify with, again, identification, you know, connect with the reader so they know who you are. That night was interesting. There was a place in Los Angeles, it's off the Santa Monica Freeway, and it's it's basically on the corner of Crenshaw and Adams, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'll say it, kind of the ghetto, you know, a lower socioeconomical, you know, uh, setting, and uh, I've been going around that area for my whole life. I mean, right down the street on Adams, there was this Armenian delicatessen my dad used to take me to that was called Partamians. Yeah. And we just loved it. I mean, it literally was there, you know, pre-war to like in the 40s. And so when we were all little kids, my dad would take us down to that uh, Partamians. And then my grandmother lived on 78th and Western. They had moved her out from the East Coast. So, but the neighborhoods, you know, progressively just started deteriorating and, yeah. you know, what was happening in the economy and how we were treating people, blah, blah, blah. So that particular night in that time was, you know, I want to say 81, 82 in, in, in the early 80s is that there was a drug on the street that was called loads. We used to call it, it was two Dordans and four coatings. And it would give you the effect of heroin, right? Yeah. And plus, I was, I had been turned on to this cough medicine called Citroforte. Mm-hmm. And it's like Tusnex, the active ingredient is hydrocodone, hydrocodone, like, which is like Vicodin yeah. or uh, hydrocodone bitartrate, right? So I was like drinking, I was buying it by the gallons and selling it for $100 a pint, right? Amongst other things like Dilaudid for like $20 a pill and then loads, those other things for like $20 a set, which were two Dordans and four coatings, right? Yeah. So that was kind of my business and I'd done business there. And sometimes I'd just go to Crenshaw and Adams and buy drugs. So imagine the scene there is that you know, I don't, I, how to describe it? It's like, if you've ever driven up where there's just street vendors everywhere. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, like an open-air market. Right, like an open-air market, but people standing there as cars going by, you know, and like people selling different things, you know, and, and some people selling, you know, drugs, some people selling their bodies, you know, some people selling, you know, counterfeit 
you know, stuff. Some people selling <laughs> stolen. It was just like this fucking bizarre of like great things for, you know, the dark side. And I had been there a bunch of times and I had, uh, you know, sold drugs there, bought drugs there. This particular night, it was getting into the winter and because uh, the nights were getting shorter mm-hmm. and it was cold a little bit. You know, L.A. is never that cold. You I was going to say, I mean, I'm from the frozen right, tundra. Yeah, exactly, so. <laughs> right. So for us, it was, you know, a little bit cold. We needed a jacket I was going to say, yeah, right? you guys are in your parkas. It's like 50 degrees. <laughs> so I, I had made an arrangement to sell four pints of Citra Forte for $400. And I had done business with these guys. So Crenshaw Adams is where everyone's hustling, but this was an apartment complex that was like a block down going east on Adams. Now that that information is really (laughs) Very specific. Where's Google Maps? I know, really specific. (laughs) So um, I met them behind the apartment building. And again, now visualize this apartment building, really a, a rundown shithole, right? <laughs> um, upstairs, you know, like cars on blocks in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the parking lot, dogs barking, you know, people arguing upstairs, probably over drugs or, you know, or prostitutions or someone with a John or whatever. And I, as I was walking up and I was smoking a cigarette, I heard this dog just barking incessantly, you know, it was like, it wouldn't stop. And I was like, God, that's just so weird. It would, you know, it's just like, would not stop barking. And I probably should have taken that as a warning. Yeah. So as I pulled up my, one guy was my friend. There was another guy there. And uh, as I walked up, I didn't really sense anything like out of place. So the way I usually did business is I would bring one pint and I had, um, fuck, I forget how much money in, in my, it probably says in my book somewhere, yeah, like $300 in yeah. my pocket, right? And so, um, I, you know, I said, hey, man, what's happening? You know, God, it's cold tonight, you know, and, and, uh, and I remember the one guy was wearing it. This is again really specific because like a members only jacket and just the whole yes. scene was like, <laughs> really dark you know we're in like living in the dark side and and you know within seconds you know which seemed like a lifetime i was hit in the back which which seemed like a, a piece of wood or a two by four pushed to the ground because the other guy was kind of, they were kind of positioned one guy was being kind of behind me but on my side and, and my friend was in front of me and yeah. as i fell to the ground my friend put his knee on my chest and had a buck knife. And uh, the other guy was rifling through my pockets. So they took the pint of, of cough medicine, Citra Forte. They... Uh, took uh, your money. Yeah, they, they took the money. And, you know, I wasn't even saying, hey, bro, what's going on? I was just like, what the fuck? You know, and he has a knife to my throat. He's like, yeah, fuck you, motherfucker, I'll kill you. You know, I was like, Jesus Christ. So, uh, I, and, and what's racing through my head is like, I'm going to die, you know, in this, you know, I, how old were I? I was like in my mid-20s, you know, and I'm like, yeah. I'm going to die bleeding to death on the asphalt of this shithole, you know, crack hotel yeah. or, or apartment building 
and this is it. And the guy's holding a knife and I'm kind of like in this twilight zone, you know, like not, you know, like, <laughs> like removed from my body. Yeah. He's holding this knife to my throat and he's like, I'll kill you, motherfucker. And, and as the guy finished getting all the money and, and, uh, and the Citra Forte, he pushed the knife into my throat. And I was like, fuck. fuck. And, you know, I couldn't say, oh, God, it went all the way to the back of my neck. But he pushed it and I felt it. Then they got up and they, they ran. They ran into the darkness down the alley. And I remember laying there and I put my, my, um, my T-shirt on the cut it wasn't like they slit my throat like ear to ear. It punctured my throat. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, you know, and I got myself up. I was like a little dizzy and a little, you know, like just taken aback. Yeah. And I'm holding it and I'm looking down at my T-shirt. It's like just soaked in blood. And now it's soaking into my Levi's, right? And so my buddy's out there in the car waiting for me. And he's just, I go, hey, man, fuck, we got to go. He's like, oh, my God, I'm looking at him. <laughs> and and he's literally going to pass out. Yeah. Right? And uh, so and I'm like in his car and I'm looking at the blood just so. So, again, Crenshaw and Adams right next to the Santa Monica Freeway. We get on the Santa Monica Freeway. We head west and off of La Cienega or La, La Brea. There's a Kaiser Permanente. Yes. Get to the emergency room. They rush me right in. They're like, what happened? Yeah. We made up some dumb story. Like we pulled over to get a pack of cigarettes and we got jumped or something. And uh, I can't remember if the police, like, if they took a report. I don't even think they did. I mean, it was just like that shit happens all the time. And they're like, yeah, yeah whatever. That's some dumb story, right? <laughs> so I'm in there. I'm getting sewed up. And, I, and it, you know memories right like i was talking to a friend like we all remember things differently so for some reason i'm remembering that the cop or not the cop the doctor the emergency room physician was like kind of this hippie like with long hair and he was wearing like clogs or something i don't even know why i didn't write that <laughs> early but, crocs yeah like in and he wasn't a, you know older he was probably you know 10 years older than me or maybe early 40s and he said uh he goes, wow, man, you're really lucky tonight. If that, if the knife would have like gone a little bit to the right or the left or whatever, he said it would have severed your juggler vein or an artery or something, and you would have bled to death in 50 seconds. You're a really lucky kid tonight, you know. Aww. And he said, whatever you're doing on the streets, you need to stop, you know. And I said, you know, of course, and you're in your addiction. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, stabbed in the neck, not bad. Can I get some? I asked him. I go. I feel really traumatized. Can I get some Valium and Dilaudid? <laughs> and he like he just looked at me like he couldn't fucking believe that yeah, came like, out of really? my mouth. Yeah, but he ended up. He actually did prescribe me like ten Valiums or something. And I think they filled it, or we went to the hospital pharmacy and they filled it. And I literally got in the car all bandaged up and. Um, and like took all ten of them. I think. Yeah, you know, well, I think of course, I gave obviously. I gave my buddy a couple, and I took the rest. And I just remember within you know I don't know however it takes to come on. I I was I was just you know my you know head was in between my legs at some point. Chin to chest. Chin to chest. You know, but it was even more like yeah. chin to knees, right? Yes. And so, what's really bizarre? Here's the bizarre part of the story. If um, it wasn't already bizarre. Yeah, exactly. The, the twist comes here is that I hadn't lived at my parents' house for years. You know, I was just, 
what do we call medium drug dealer? Yeah, not major, level. not minor, but a medium drug dealer. And I was I was living probably five miles away from my parents. And uh, I wake in the morning. I wake up and I'm in my parents' house. So my friend must have been so scared he didn't want to take me home. So he takes me to my parents' house. I have no recollection of them like getting me, putting me in bed, or anything like total blackout, right? Yeah. And uh, so um, I wake, you know, I come to in the morning, right? And like it's probably midday by then. Yeah. And all my clothes are gone because I mean they're probably just blood soaking. Yeah. Right? And so, and my mom probably threw them out or anything, but there's nothing to wear. I'm literally like naked, like in this bed. <laughs> and I'm like, and I look and there's like this robe, but it was like kind of like a shorter robe, yeah, not like, like, a like a mini robe. skirt robe. Yes, kind of like, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? And I had long hair and I just, you know, I, I look atrocious. So anyway, I put this robe on and I go out of the room, just kind of like still in a daze. And I have this huge bandage on my neck and, uh, I looked down and my mom had this AA meeting once a week at her house. <laughs> you fucking believe this, right? Had an oh AA meeting at her house. They called it the God Squad. And it oh. was a bunch of these Christian women in the program. It was, I, it was probably a private meeting. It wasn't like in the, the book. And literally, I stand, and it was a two-story house. So I stand at the top of the landing of the stairway and look down at their meeting. And someone glanced and they caught, you know, said, oh, Honey, I'm, I'm so glad you're up. Are you okay? And I'm like, uh, you know, I don't even know if I'm okay. And, <laughs> and yeah. um, so at that point, it was just like, I think, you know, the meeting, they didn't all surround me. But so this is what I think, you know, which is scary, <laughs> I think, you know, but. Yeah, um, as Dave sees it. <laughs> so. You know, in my book, I talk about the power of, you know, synergy and power of energy. And I believe whether whatever you believe, good, bad, or different, whether they're focusing on their religion, Christianity, and the program, the 12-step program, that they would sit there and pray for their kids. And they would put this energy out into the universe. Did that keep me alive that night? I don't fucking know. I know a lot of people that have been stabbed and are dead. Yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of people that have OD'd and are dead. Um, was I supposed to live? Is that the cosmic plan? Who the fucking knows, right? Yeah, I but I just crazy. know that they were putting energy into the universe, you know. And and again, you'd like, oh, here goes New Age Dave, you know, with, <laughs> or or they're praying to God, they're Christian God, and that's what saved my life. I, you know, I can't say that, but I can say that there is a power greater than ourselves. And we talk about that in, in my book and they talk about it in all the other literature is that it doesn't necessarily have to be God, you know, whatever God, you yeah, know, a, a Roman God, God a, a Greek G. God, you know, yeah. whatever, you know, Shiva, Brahma, Krishna. It's a power. There's an energy. There's a loving, compassionate energy. And I believe the process of the steps is the power. I believe the synergy of Tasha and I sitting here. I mean, I feel this even telling the story of like, fuck, I feel love. Yeah. You know, I feel compassion. I feel, you know, it like almost choked me up. But it's it's such, you know, people are like, well, that's a gnarly story. But I, you know, we've got hundreds of those stories. Yeah. You know, so 
Yeah, it's you one know, I think, story. You know, again, the moral of the story is that, yeah, things happen out there, and yeah, you can die, and you never know. Um, that I was brought to a really loving place, and I'm really grateful for that, you know. And my mother did get to see her son years later, not, you know, probably, I don't know, whenever that was, 82, 83. She got to see her son get sober and yeah. and become a, you know, a, a productive member of society where he's just not taking anymore. And, and when my mom died, I was there for her. Yeah. So, you know, don't make me start crying, but... Uh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that is the what part of the book? The prologue. The prologue of the book. So there's other stories in there too that are kind oh, of funny, yeah. right? So Tra- I think yeah, funny, you know, tragic. They right? run the gamut, right? We'll. Uh, so yeah, that's a little bit about my story, and then you know, not that specific story, but like the identification thing. Yeah, and then we're gonna keep going on. Tasha and I are gonna go like chapter through chapter of the book. And, yeah, whether uh, you like it or not. Yeah, whether you like it or not. And then how can they, you know, we don't want, because no one's going to write this down listening to it. What do they suggest that we do? Uh, we suggest mm-hmm. that uh, you check out the link. That on, on Facebook or Instagram. Facebook, Instagram, uh, or on the website for the book, 12 Steps Without God. Yeah, again, it's not the number 12. It's, it's written, written out, 12stepswithoutgod.com, right? Boom, Boom. dot com. And, um, yeah, we'll have links where you can get the book, where you can listen to podcasts, listen to more of these lovely podcasts. If we've piqued your interest, um, all kinds of things. And there's more exciting things coming up. Yep. All right. Good night. We'll see you next time. Good night. I'd like to thank all the people that are involved in making this happen. Gerald Jones for producing and engineering this podcast. He's absolutely brilliant. Follow him on Instagram at Sonia HTML. His music is amazing. Maya Grace for her hair and makeup. I know what you're saying. This is a podcast. Why do you have hair and makeup? We just want to look awesome for each other. See you next time.